Alrighty, Japan has a rich history full of interesting architecture, beautiful and soft style paintings, and associations with many wonderful food dishes such as sushi. Of course, that's not why you're listening, for as many beautiful things are associated with this island nation, few things are more recognized from different forms of media than the iconic samurai. What is so captivating about these warriors? Where were they really that much different from the knights of the European kingdoms from around the same time? We find out today the deep roots of these warriors, the history of the country that would give way to their creation, and some of the famous exploits, myths, and battles of the samurai. All that and more on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied. Critical. Need to know. Information. Belongs in a museum, 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 Stop skipping your remedial class. Hello everyone and welcome back. If you are new here, welcome. Your hair looks nice. Anyway, before we get too far along, I want to do some front office tidying up. Firstly, thank you to those who have reviewed us. If you haven't, that's a great way to support the show without doing anything crazy like spending money. Go to the link tree, which is in the, which is in the description. It's also Linktree slash Remedial Scholar. You can type that in and find it that way. Uh, you can go to the Captivate site, which is the first big link on the link tree. And at the top of that, you can review us via Podchaser. There's a little star icon you click on that go to Podchaser. if you have apple Podcasts, you can do it from the main app or on spotify you can do it from there as well so you know that combined with word of mouth and sharing us as much as possible is a huge help speaking of word of mouth a huge shout out to the macabre emporium podcast with sarah and david do a podcast about true crime some paranormal stuff odd history and different things like that and i love the odd stories that they end up talking about very interesting stuff uh they gave us a shout out and i appreciate them very much so go check their show out they're closing in on 40 episodes so get in there before they make it big so you can say you were there when it all started just like you were here with me and with that let's move on and get into what you're all here for the samurai Today we'll go through the history of Japan, learning about the people who grew in in that collection of islands and the time periods that shaped them before coming to the time where samurai came into the fold. After that, we will discuss early versions of them and how they became and how they began to change the very way of life within Japan. Well, they'll lead us into some interesting anecdotes and probably mythologized events, but fun nonetheless. Eventually, we'll come to the end of the samurai timeline and discuss some of their lasting effects. Cool. Cool. Let's get into it. I think the samurai are one of those things that every weird kid gets into like a little bit. I spoke on other episodes about books I read as as a child where there are pictures of medieval weapons and Roman soldiers and things pertaining to that. But I think for a long time, I was sure I was going to be a samurai when I grew up. Watched a lot of anime after school, which didn't help drew a lot of samurai type people and ninjas wielding katanas when i was little my dad even bought some swords which i only ever referred to as samurai swords one being the wakasashi and the other being a katana uh uh, we'll learn plenty about them in a little bit, uh, but anyway, I would run around the yard with the Guakazashi because it was the shorter of the two and I was a very small child and I would have some intense sword fights with the ghosts in my dad's yard. I also had a great imagination and I often wonder where it went and it makes me sad, but 
we are going to move on from that real quick. I would also walk home from elementary school every day, and when I got home, I would pop on Cartoon Network, and Toonami would be playing Hironi Kenshin or Inuyasha, both of which feature a protagonist that wields a katana and just tears things up. Granted, Inuyasha was a demon, so his fighting, fair? No, but that's okay. Hironi Kenshin, however, that anime really stuck with me. If you're not familiar, it is an anime adapted from the manga of the same name, following protagonist Kenshin Himura, a wandering swordsman who, as it turns out, is a legendary assassin and insane swords like swordsman. Uh, did it also stick with me because Kenshin is Kenshin has poofy red hair in the show? Maybe. Or maybe that was my adult brain imprinting this idea. Who knows? Kenshin was cool because he had a sword, had all the skills to kill absolutely everyone, but wielded a reverse blade katana. Uh, this anime and manga became so popular that people even started making legitimate, like, real-life katanas with the blade on the backside and then a dull front edge. I only know this because I may have been window shopping for one. I am a total geek at heart, okay? Like, I don't know what you, I don't know what you want from me. But this hero carried the sword because he had an oath that he swore not to take any more lives and had this virtuous heart where he ends up protecting a lot of people in the show and everything. And that kind of stuck with me. And also rings true with the mythical samurai code, right? Because he is a former samurai in the show and there's also this superhero-like honor to the pop culture references of these warriors as well where does that all come from is it even true to them like at all well we have to go back pretty far to get a good idea about japan and the people within it to understand this a little bit more nothing else gives us some basis for the history being laid out today now i will say i have seen some of these things up close and personal which was definitely a cool experience all the brother had his bachelor party in denver and we went to a museum one of the days we were there and they had an exhibit on samurai and other japanese historical items but only thing i really cared about at the time was the samurai stuff obviously i wish i had the pictures uh still from that trip but i broke my phone shortly after while i was in alaska so I have no clue what happened to those pictures. So this is my PSA. Make double backups of the pictures you love, okay? Uh, ADHD is really taking this story around some interesting turns. But anyway, uh, we're in Denver. We got to see all this authentic armor and weapons. And it was so cool. Was, there's videos and um, different presentations showing how, you know, the swords were made and this kind of thing and you know uh so walking around seeing some of the armor was pretty cool i mean it was also like very small like and i like this is just facts japanese people on average are shorter than the average american and i am taller than the average american so these suits did look super tiny but you know it would fit them that's fine <laughs> definitely wouldn't fit me uh but the armor is 400 some years old so they were probably even shorter back then. I, don't get mad at me about that. That's just how it is. Uh, but there's also, like I said, there's videos to show the sacred process of folding the steel to create these intense swords. It is not to be understated that they're very passionate about high quality things. And this is on full display with the, with the smithing and, you know, the fabricating of some of these weapons and armor. Now we need to go further back though. Let's go all the way back. Japan has such a rich history that honestly was not available to many a few hundred years ago due to a combination of translation issues and the fact that they maintained like a sovereign approach to diplomacy which was understandable to a point as we learned the last few weeks with piracy not were not only were the water sketchy but a lot of the other countries were as well and still are kind of so going back to a period of semi prehistory in japan the earliest we go back is uh the Jomon people uh 
named Joman due to the distinct rope pattern on the ceramics that are found from this time. Estimated ranges as far back as 13,000 BCE to around 300 BCE, which is a pretty massive range. People from this time were very much a hunter-gatherer people. Many tribes all over the archipelago of what we know Japan can be attributed to the Joman. Uh, over practically 13,000 years of this period, there's evidence of the transition from hunter-gatherers to the beginnings of a settled agricultural time. Now, with mainland China not being super far away, there's some suggestion that some of these changes and how they did things could have been influenced by outside forces, but the arch archaeology suggests that's not really the case. There is evidence pointing to the Joman advances predating any Chinese connections that have been found so far. Now, ceramic art nerds might be curious, so we'll share this. The pots that the Joman made were fired in bonfires or just carved from stone. There's also some thought that the Joman left uh, long-standing effects on Japanese history with the different advents such as metalworking, glass crafting, and other, and even some customs regarding marriage and architecture. Now, part of the beauty, but also mystery of a prehistoric group is that, well, there's not a lot of information about them. But it is nice to know where they came from as we continue. The next major period is the Yayoi, which goes from 300 to 250 CE. 300 BCE to 250 CE. Now, there's some overlapping dates uh, forewarning, just so you know, so you're not sitting there like, hey, man, there's a short time for all this to happen. But just so you know, it does overlap a little bit. Uh it's not like they were like we're done with the joman period now we're now the yoyoi like it it didn't move that way it'd be cool if it did so in the yoyoi we have a bigger focus on agriculture and settling the yoyoi is named after the area inside tokyo where the first artifact was found by scholars in 1884 the new culture spread slowly through the islands gaining momentum after the turning of the new millennium improvements of metalworking working with different fabrics and of course i mentioned agriculture there's not a lot of facts that point to exactly what changed in the islands but we do know that interactions between the people from china began in this time and that it had a major influence on things that the yoyoi were doing they introduced rice which is a game changer uh, with rice farming there's plenty of farming tools to be made which is also where the metalworking really begins metal this time would have been iron and iron iron is a fickle mistress iron rusts real real bad uh compared to the steel that would come later so there's a lot of missing pieces to the yoyoi puzzle but we can assume that the standard uh things such as axes knives and hooks and sickles shovels things like that even more unfriendly types of metals like swords arrowheads all things of that nature did exist at that time not to say we haven't found any they're just few and far between and in pretty bad shape when they are found so and an odd note but there are bronze artifacts that date newer than the iron ones which is a little backwards if you know most trajectories of civilizations that it's usually bronze and then iron and yeah um and one of the reasons why people point to outside influence via Chinese introduction within this period is because of this. As I mentioned, they were now weaving fabrics together, got some sick new threads going on, new boot goofing, if you will. Some comparison to the graves of the Yidoi and the Joman of before yields some interesting notes that they are they had a noticeable difference and that this is probably due to the fact that they had different diets newer diets and then you know the diets that come with growing food instead of chasing it and you know that chasing your food doesn't always lead you with the you know the fullest of bellies so there are some records from the chinese side of things that describe life in japan at the time they describe inhabitants as being pretty spaced out this place they called wo uh, is broken up 
to different communities, but they also described a tribute system, and potentially this could be a point to growing tax system that was fed to the queen, known as Himiko, uh, who was able to bring the lands together after a civil war in the second century CE. That's right. We get a queen pretty early on, and it was described that she used some type of magic and spirituality to maintain her leadership there's not all but there's like a lot of mystery around her specifically as well there's also some legends that coincide with how her dynasty i guess would have been ran and also some myths from early on she said to really have turned things around after the civil war both socially and economically chinese records taken from around a century later so the exact details before only suspicion based on archaeology and um you know what people were saying but the Civil War itself isn't uh, described by Japanese writings without being largely enveloped in myths, like I mentioned. And the Chinese notes really only talk about the war happening and no real firm details because they were kind of just asking people and they were like, yeah, we had that thing happen that one time. In the Chinese notes, there's also discussion on the diets of the Wu people at the time, eating a mix of rice and vegetables and raw fish. There's a description of early Japanese architecture where they were on where they built uh, stilted houses with the floors raised up from the ground, which is a difference from the Duggan-style houses of the Jomon period. With the introduction of the outside world, there's also a bit of migration taking place. No, like, real numbers say how many people, but scholars suggest that there was not a big enough amount to really change the fundamentals of the people already residing in the lands. They did bring the things I have mentioned, uh, but these acted more as a boost than a total change in development. From 250 to about 538 CE, we have the Kofun period. Kofun is named after the style of burial tombs used from around these times. These large megalithic structures shaped like keyholes from a bird's eye view held many important people from the time. The continuing growth thanks to farming and other advances pushed the societies forward and the people of the and the people of Japan were now really establishing communities and government. This would lead to a slow unification of the entire nation, kind of. Spirituality was still in the hearts of people. Shinto, which had been the major spiritual belief held by the people of Japan since sometime during the Yayoi period, continued in the Kofun period. Shinto is pretty interesting and reminds me a lot of indigenous spirituality of the people of North America. It's a lot of nature balance type things which makes sense because if you rely on the wills of nature to survive you're gonna have some reverence for it shinto uses different types of what are called kami to enforce these natural laws the kami are responsible for different phenomenon and or phenomena and even the natural beauty of the lands kami is also part of, kami is also part of something we discussed last week in the two-parter of the pirates which is kamikaze or divine winds these winds saved the main islands of japan from the mongol hordes and route to conquer them there are shrines dedicated to the worship of shinto and the iconic gateways that could be seen in different locations in japan and in media related to it are called the tori gateways are called tori gateways which is often used at shinto sites to mark the transition from a regular to a spiritual place these are like the two columns with the stacked crossbars on top some feature a curved horizontal crossbar and others do not but you know what i'm talking about like they're super duper iconic so i mentioned the slow process of unification and this is partly due to how many pe uh, how many different provinces there were where people were essentially jockeying for control on their own it's kind of kind of how things would just continue to go for a long time yeah these different clans rising up from different regions and declaring their rule the best rule and then others who fought them because they believed in it or against you know uh some people would fight for them like you know, is very interesting. The most notable of these regions is the Yamato, Yama, 
Yamato, who slowly gained uh, who slowly gained more power over the course of the next few centuries. The court of Yamato was one that even paved the way for the first military action outside of the archipelago in the form of attacking the Korean peninsula, Korea only being some 50 kilometers from the island of Tsushima, which is the same distance roughly to the nearest coast of Japan, that being some 60 miles total for anyone who doesn't want to do the math. <laughs> As that is a big distance, especially at the time, but I have mentioned that before in the Pirates episode that these people lived near the water and became very good at traversing it very quickly. Anyway, these campaigns were once said to be rousing success, but more close looks have deemed them not to be such. There's a lot of pre-World War II and post-World War II continuity changes in how the stories go, and it's probably just partly due to the Japan's nature of being secluded and not a lot of external inf interference so they kind of get caught up in their own narrative a little bit maybe no real fact checking for some things I don't know that's just kind of my speculation but um it maybe it doesn't change a lot either which doesn't you know uh, inspire people to go look into things but there was an idea that the southern tip of Korea was taken by these Japanese raiders and that has since been mostly found to be not true by even Japanese historians so one interesting thing I have found in this is how often the seats of power changed, not just for who was in power, but that the so-called capitals changed. I found that the, this could be attributed to the Shinto, the Shinto beliefs in which an emperor died and the stain of that death could affect the location with a new one. You know, you get a fresh start and that was kind of needed, which I, I like. I like that concept, but the logistics don't sound, uh, <laughs> sound super solid, but you know guaranteed work for the builders at the time you know so that's good more migration was occurring many more different skilled trades moving into the islands bringing with them culture and their skills as well writing system which china had been using effectively to this point also leaked into japan and was used quite thoroughly the kanji which are very interesting to look at even cooler to get tattooed on you especially if you don't speak the language uh just kidding don't do that in fact don't get any language you don't speak tattooed on you that's the safest way to not be embarrassed later when you meet somebody who does speak that language. I'm not speaking from personal experience, but I do see those uh, <laughs> those images online of somebody getting a kanji tattoo and being super confident that it means like strength or warrior or something cool. And then it actually means like frog. The kanji uh, is a very, very cool writing system. I admire it, but it also makes my head hurt trying to conceptualize it as a written language. There are now an official 2100 characters that are used for everyday things, but there are tens of thousands of different characters that can be used in non-official means. Uh, each individual symbol has a meaning and a, combining it with others creates different meanings and so on. And when this was brought to Japan, there was no real official written language, but there was a spoken one. So the Japanese made up of, uh, so Japanese is made up of these and then a combination of other symbols to fully understand and compute the, uh, the written and the spoken together. Further expanse in different agricultural avenues led to more stability and with that meant more power by the clans that would be in power. The Yamato, as stated before, were the old first of the clans to really take this spot in the fourth century there were the emissary there were emissaries between nations especially between the korean peninsula and the japanese islands there's a lot of immigration through this connection as mentioned before there were many things that came into japan via this method one thing that would be uh one thing that would become a major factor and change how the people and the powers would control things buddhism had been slowly slipping into the country over the last few decades but there was a you know a major change when the king of bakchi which is a kingdom in the 
uh, Korean Peninsula had written to Emperor Kinmei about how wonderful the teachings of Buddha were. It was with this introduction and a kind of a stamp of approval that the dynamics began to shift. A man named Soga Iname would be one of the earliest major supporters of the religion, carrying the images of it on their banners and using it to strike fear into enemies. Which I find this a little ironic considering it's, you know, the deity being used is Buddha and I don't really consider him to be an especially violent or fearful god, but hey, whatever works, you know, to take control of the people, right? <laughs> the attempts by Soga did not work. Ultimately, there were some things that happened in way of plagues and that made this attempt fail, but the seeds were sown and his descendants would continue this while the Yamato clan began to slip from power. Soga clan would take this take its place for the next period the age of reform the age of reform is either from 538 or 552 to 710 ce uh, can also be seen as referred to the as the asuka period which has been named for the location in which the government governing courts would be held which is near modern day nara soga uh soga's plan came through full force in this period with his wife and him giving life to three future emperors as uh, as well as princes and princesses one of whom was the emperor Su suiko who was one of the longest reigning empress one of the longest reigning empress regents and between her and her nephew prince shotoko would usher in major changes in both modern reforms and in the government and also continuing the promotion of Buddhism in Japan. The name and also the timeline for when the age of reform began stands from when Buddhism really took off. Prince Shotoku loved Buddhism and interweaved the teachings into his plans for what the government could be. Buddhism wasn't the only thing that was being taught. Confucian teachings also came from China via the Korean Peninsula just as Buddhism. And much like Buddhism, there is a heavy focus on humanity and morality. Prince Shotoku relied heavily on the Chinese government systems to build his own. Some of the things implemented were constitution in 604 and also ranking of the courts which was done a year earlier. The rankings had ba had a the rankings had a basis in Confucian teachings and established members of the court and also gave visual indicators of what rank they held by what color they wore. Within the court there was an idea of meritocracy and combine that with the constitution there there were responsibilities not just for the rulers but also magistrates and the people of the regions as well. Shotoku was also supposedly the one who gave Japan the name Land of the Rising Sun, Nihon aka Japan. The prince died in 622 and with him the full force of what he imagined. His living descendants were killed after a few decades and I assume it was due to his ideals being instilled in them and maybe them taking up the banner so to speak. I think that speaks to the power uh, that his enemies felt he had and they were kind of scared. One of the things he did that worked well to preserve his legacy was having sent emissaries to China to learn from them and their government. So the Soga killing, uh, so when the Soga killed the Prince Shotoku's family, they did not erase all the concepts from the lands. The Soga were killed afterwards, ordered following a coup that began the began to reconstruct the government again, going to a centralized government, removing private ownership from lands and distributing it uh, from the state to those who fit certain criteria. These are known as the Taika reforms, which were instituted by which were instituted by Nakano Oe and Nakatomi no Kamatari, also known as Fujiwara Kamatari. This name would be the main name in power until our topic takes hold in after the 11th century. Also, Nakatomi, come on. You know, you know what I'm saying? Nak Nakatomi Plaza? 
diehard. Follow me for a second. But in the novel, it was an American company, American oil company. But in film, they made it a Japanese company. And this is part of American temperament in the 1980s, where we were essentially paranoid of all types of foreign power succeeding in our stead. So the switch came to include a Japanese name. They were doing because they were doing so well at the time and uh, securing their place in all the technologies and the idea by different media executives was to essentially trash them whenever they could knock them down a peg or two i guess i don't know there's a whole bunch of subtle knocks at japan but like in that movie but that connection caught my eye and my attention and i wanted to include it because that's kind of wild anyway i i looked that up to see if that name nakatomi plaza or the company was based off of this guy and then i found that dark history about it so uh, anyway the nakatomi clan was very powerful at the time and that led to this exchange uh this exchange to happen and establish the fujiwara clan in its place a lot of the things that kamatari instilled were very much in line with chinese methodology at the time land taken from owners and owned by the state worked on by farmers worked on by the former owners and taxes paid upwards seems a little communistish but my very limited understanding of it right but this is you know 1100 some odd years before marx so maybe it's just kind of the way things were Issues were brought forth to local dignitaries in the form of a town hall style, which would lead to an upward movement of the issue from there if those dignitaries so saw fit. Meanwhile, Korea was warring the Bakchi and the Silla, either Silla or Sia, I'm going to say Silla, along with mainland China, all struggling for control. And Japan honored the relationship between them and the Bakchi and sent warriors to help. The Bakchi ultimately fell in 663 and the Silla gaining control of Korea really set their future relations with Japan and not like in a good way. <laughs> Following this and with Nakano Oe being at the helm of the nation, they retreated and decided upon not involving themselves in the conflicts of lands further away. With this, it was unified and with the unification it evolved into a more modern version of itself after 710 until about 794 is the Nara period named after when the capital was in the Nara region the capital in this time was also focused more to be a location for foreign dignitaries needing to know where to go which would be hard when the capitals moved every time there's a new emperor this is also important for the strength of the nation for outsiders consider you can't exactly scare people from invading you if the knowledge of your nation is that the capital moves and things don't seem that structured connection from spirituality also influenced this if you have big buildings for gods to see then they would look more favorable favorably on you right this uh this thought kind of coincided with the fact that the Buddhist monasteries really took hold in these cities. The issue with that is that they soon held too much power and influence in the city and the capital was moved once again after 74 years in Nara before settling in Kyoto in 794, the end of the Nara period. Other events in this period were showings of weakness within the Taika reforms. The high tax rates made too many poor people even more so and the people who could afford them bought the belongings of those who couldn't buddhist temples and aristocrats also had no tax burden which both upset the people who did as well as depleted the revenue that otherwise would go towards the government this meant that the government could not afford certain things but wealthy landowners could and this began to shift the scope of the land another way to get out from under heavy tax burden was to serve in the military with conscription being the ticket to such a free life so it's not a super cheap way to do it since you did have to pay for all of your equipment and things of that nature but hey no taxes for the rest of your life i'd take that deal 100 percent. also drum roll 
Our topic finally enters the lexicon with some tweakage going on to the Tyker reforms. There's some new laws and rules were implemented included in this where have a structural classes, 12 rankings in them. In the sixth spot, we have samurai, which are servants to the region. The word meaning to serve, these people were not members of the military, nor did they have anything to do other than um, some local officials of like a lower level. But they are, you know, that word does come from there. Meanwhile, I mentioned the uh, Buddhist presence influencing political favor, and this didn't really jive with the Fujiwara clan, who were instrumental in the changes going uh, going away from the Taika reforms and into the Ritsuryo laws. They were playing some shadow games and wanted an emperor who would not focus too much on Buddhism, but more on the future of the empire and thus they found that emperor and emperor kamu who they felt shared their views on these matters it was kamu who made the moves of the capital from nara to eventually modern day kyoto known as uh Kyo at, at this time this ushered in the heian period which lasted from 794 to 1185 some sweeping advents include the slow abolishment of conscripted armies the new methodology was to raise forces in regions based on the men available in the locations at the same time there was a new position in government which was that of shogun who is like the general's general top dog the shogun would be given orders and summon different clans and their best warriors as the army instead of arming random farmers to do to the job the shogun would really only be a military leader but later on that title ends up meaning more before that really took hold kamu also declared war on the tribes in the northern lands in the Honshu region the Amishi people. These people were described as barbarians by the Japanese at the time, and I like to imagine them as essentially just a more tribal group compared to the civilized southern neighbors. Like very much that <laughs> like like very much like a Celt to the Romans, right? But I don't know, that's not really a good example because the Romans kind of considered them to be barbarians too. Never mind. <laughs> they they were like literally just barely not the same fight was really not good then the army brought to the north got beat really badly with the amishi being so comfortable in the cold forest regions that they decimated the hodgepodge army that kamu and that kamu assembled its failure cast a negative light on kamu's legacy and there was another bit of inward looking by the japanese in sense of military tactics mentioned they got rid of the standing army and with that the pseudo national guard type defense that they mounted were the predecessors of the samurai as we know them. Some other things that occurred in the Heian period uh, really took the power away from the government and placed it in the local aristocrats. Some of the things uh, like changing how the taxes were collected, how often lands were granted, and to whom, how laws were enforced, and uh, all really changed how the regions and landowners dealt with one another. I mentioned the standing army going away. Well, when the appointed uh, military warriors were not at war, they were protecting the land that the wealthy owners had obtained. These warriors served on the land and made sure that no other landowner would take from theirs. They actually did end up working out in the way of peace. That's from the time of Kamu's death in 806 until almost the new millennia, there were really no major conflicts. There was a slump in rule and the government with what a shell of its former self really ritualistic and performative as the aristocrats had held the power and between them fought for more land this had an interesting effect though as they fought for one another or as their men fought one another their they made their guards more powerful now while that was occurring at the same time the lower level royalty and aristocrats were annoyed with how they were footing the bills on a lot of the taxes and not getting a lot of income. The Fujiwara still had a hold on the government and 
were really not just they were really just gold lining their their own pockets while people below the lower classes really got really really upset while the rich were getting more rich the warriors who spent their free time preparing for invasions and guarding lands by protecting different uh practicing different martial arts and tactics well they were getting annoyed and the people who paid them were as well in the middle of the 10th century several groups of such men prepared for control one led by a man named tyra masakado ended up controlling an estimated seven provinces with his forces this man is considered the first like real real samurai and had real fight the power kind of vibes now his reveal his rebellion was eventually defeated but this kind of sows the seeds in other soon-to-be samurai in the future another famous example is that of the fujiwara Sumi sumitomo you might hear that fujiwara name and go hey didn't you just say they were kind of like in charge well yeah but he defected his position which was a charge to get rid of pirates and guess what he became one that's right the second i said pirates you probably you probably knew because that happened a bunch in last week's episode and you remember and that's what i love about you anyway yes he was one of the pirate hunters turned pirate leading others to help him really throw off the government in some monumental ways also going back a little bit but the fujiwara family was so insanely connected that because of an active tactic to constantly have the children either marry the emperor or the emperor's son or daughter and instill yourself as the grandpa or father-in-law of the emperor so your family kind of continues on but anyway, between these two and others like them, really showed vulnerability of the government. It has no standing armies. Toward the end of the Heian period, links would soon lessen for the for the Fujiwara, and in the first time in over a hundred years, in <laughs> in 1086, Shirakawa took power. And after not being born a Fujiwara, which is just wild, this meant that the strength of Fujiwara slipped, and Shirakawa was able to attempt some changes that the faltering nation could rebound while still earning money for himself in the process where tradition also became noticed with him where he just retired basically uh, there's an idea of retired emperors who would just become buddhist monks who ran temples but still kind of had their foot in the power door not new to this emperor but this coinciding with the lack of fujiwara made it a little more obvious maybe i don't know also how great of an idea to retire from being an emperor go directly into another tax-free lifestyle and one that was often donated to heavily so these types were referred to as insei or cloister governments the cloister being a place in which a buddhist worships essentially these guys also had some hired guards which could also be seen as precursor to the samurai as they fit the description of servants who protect and are paid by wealthy people the guards combined with an influx of just really extravagant temples designed by former emperors and some weird money laundering scheme thing I suppose the idea started off well-intentioned but as most things man corrupts the wealthy former emperors also took up space in these temples so that otherwise that would that could otherwise go to uh dedicated but lower class servants of buddha so kind of rude the wealthy had it coming though why is that well as i mentioned before they were hiring guards to protect their fancy things these guards were essentially extension of their wealth or power and what do you do with the things that are extension of your power you make them look real strong real pretty you know you get a new paint job on that fancy big truck you know you get a lot of them and after a little while they will have a real apes together strong moment 
You know what I mean? And wonder why they needed the aristocrats to run things when they had the muscle to take it and run it themselves. Here's where we get into the birth of the samurai. We got there, finally. I know, a lot of build up. Uh, alright, so with the samurai finally being at the fold, I want to double back real quick and touch on the Tyra. Uh, Tyra clan, which one of whom was the Masakado, who I mentioned a little bit ago, whose rebellion was crushed. This was not exactly the end, though, when there was soon a struggle for power between the clans, the Tyra and the Mini Minamoto. These two clans were essentially the Japanese Montagues and Capulets. It was really quite interesting, so I want to lay it all laid out here. I mentioned Tyra Masakado, and his lineage goes all the way back to Kamu. Remember that guy? Okay, so after one of his ancestors gets anointed as Tyra, who was Kamu's grandson, Masakado is great-grandson of Takamune, who is great-grandson of Kamu. Masakado starts building some power in Kanto. Real Emperor, not super pumped about it. Kanto is the region in Japan where Tokyo is, and it's like the like a state almost. Anyway, that's when the rebellion happens. Taira Tadatsune, who I think is Masakado's grandson, attempts to get their name back in the game in Kanto. And that's when Minamoto Yorinobu shows up. Yorinobu does his job and stops this nonsense, but this makes these feuds even stronger. So that was in 1028. Now, Minamoto are running things in Kanto, and later on the Fujiwara are paying them. So, Shirakawa comes along and they hire a Tara by the name of Masamori. This guy comes in, shows the Minamoto clan what's up, and drives them out by using ships and arranging coastal fights, and they didn't like that at all. So the Tara clan beats back the Minamoto clan and holds them off until 1156. One Minamoto member even helped the Tara clan. Yoshitomo aided Tara Kiramori and betrayed his own family. I know, right? He was ordered to kill his father following a struggle, but he ended up refusing. He then later tried to stage a coup of his own, but was beaten, and the Tyra continued reign supreme until 1159. That is when Kiramori decides to just start killing everybody. <laughs> the Fujiwara and the Minotomo combined forces, but still could not beat the Shirakawa-backed Tyra forces in what is known as the Heiji Disturbances. Tyra Kiramori had placed himself atop the Japanese hierarchy, not quite the emperor, but the one who the emperor was indebted to after being born into a middle-class warrior family. Kiramori was even named prime minister, his children, uh, his children marrying nobles, his clan gaining positions in the government while comfortably lining his pockets and those around him in different schemes and business dealings such as opening different ports and collecting from that. Meanwhile, Yoritomo, the eldest son of Yoshimoto, who helped overthrow his own clan, led to the Tyra Park power up was plotting. Yoritomo was gathering warriors, arranging treaties, and most of all biding time as the public began to slowly turn on the Tyra clan. Their exuberant wealth hoarding, especially on the top ranks, even dissatisfied some of the lower ranking Tyra members. For 20 years they held this power and grew their wealth beyond comparison, you know, to others of that same time. In 1180, the Genpai War had started and the Yoritomo began his plot and by 1182 had captured the eastern coast and was marching towards Kyoto. Taira Kiramori had a weird thing going on and his own grandson, who was anywhere from an infant to five years old at the time, was appointed emperor. Well, this, uh, this did not end well for him. Taira retreated to Kyoto initially, but then after some time decided to take 
Battle 2 of Minamoto. This culminated in the Battle of Kirikara, which is which was the standard for samurai battles at the time. So I had to call out their lineage and show who was who and let others know what their bloodline was in an effort to both honor their heritage, but also, you know, instill fear in their opponent potentially. They're also chosen to fight in pairs and instead of a full-on bloodbath of chaos, these were simple duels. And the duels also meant that successful samurai could earn a spot in history for their name and thus honor when that was the rational why it wasn't just a full-on battle that we normally think of the day went on like that and the army separated at night uh but the minamoto had their own plans <laughs> so after the dark had fallen they released a stampede of oxen bulls with their horns like with torches on fire attached to their horns and they had them run through the camp the honor battles were simply a distraction in order to arrange the flanking and the bulls the tyro force would run but then they were met with the force that they were engaged with in one-on-one fights who then drove them into the waiting ambush force now this is an estimated 5,000 minamoto force that just decimated some 40,000 tyra strong force um <laughs> now some estimates even drawing upwards of 70,000 dead but that's an aggressive estimate for such a small attacking force but pretty good tactics this alone forced the tyra to abandon their hold on kyoto it's just not the end of their fight though they made their way at, uh westward until they reached the coastline and ran out of room to go any further they engaged in ship battles but this was really just ship platform stage and mortal combat style game where they had combat on the decks of the ships as the ground like that was their fighting ground and then if they fell off they die since they were likely armor clad and very heavy the tyra force had some trickeration and instead of having the child emperor on board the flagship they had him on a smaller ship the only issue being that someone on their team ratted them out and that ship was sunk and the child emperor you know he dropped <laughs> the tyra were defeated throwing themselves in the water or gunning themselves throwing themselves in the water or gutting themselves rather than submitting defeat so the minamoto clan succeeds beats their sworn enemy and yoritomo brings honor back to his family after his father double crossed them yoritomo also decides that he's going to be running things from now on and implementing again a shogunate a military government shogun is another name for a general as i mentioned of the samurai and became named for a supreme leader after this 1192 minamoto yoritomo ushered in this new period as the medieval times entered warrior class had now taken control kind of yoritomo had taken control and brought in the kamakura shogunate which is just the name after the place in which he was instilled like his power was instilled his power remained mostly until his death even though he was fighting to keep the aristocrats in place off and on throughout that whole time uh, when he died in 1199 his wife's family assumed control of the shogunate and they finangled the power as their own even outlasted some of the descendants of yoritomo the Kamakura shogunate would remain in power until 1333 but they would be tested before then they referred to as such but uh, i have seen some say that the term samurai would not have been used until after these next events however many do consider this to be the major first test for them and the new style of government so in 1267 emissaries carrying a letter for the emperor of japan these emissaries were those belonging to a man whose name is kublai uh kublai khan as you might know uh, the successor of Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan. Uh, I need to do an episode on him at some point, but I think we're all familiar enough with him, you know, with the last uh, episode and the Mongolians to a certain degree to move forward. Also, Genghis Khan pronounced that way because I was told it is closer to how it would have pronounced 
back then has been anglicized into a normal pronunciation either way real quick Gen genghis khan was the grandfather of kublai khan and he united the mongolian tribes and began a fast-paced campaign in which he dominated pretty much everybody killed so many people in the conquest that trees grew back over some of the lands that reduced the carbon footprint of humans during that time he established the silk road for trading through asia and has ultimately struck fear into pretty much everybody so his grandson's now running the show and he wrote a letter to the kamakura shogunate telling them how amazing he is and how good it would be if they just really submitted the best part of the khan army was that they didn't have to destroy you they wouldn't you know they would just take your submission and be like cool pay tribute and that's it submission was definitely encouraged but you know not necessary the genesis of the yuan dynasty kublai khan was not getting the answer that he wanted and eventually sent more letters if you remember last week at all you'll remember that khan sent an armada of forty thousand warriors only to have a typhoon wipe them out they did make landfall in tsushima uh and they and, you know, the game Ghosts of Tsushima is based around this event. The Mongols gained control of the island, but when they tried to advance, the storm caught them lacking. After that, Japanese prepared for a second invasion, moving troops around, building defenses, spending a lot of money to do so. And after the second invasion failed, the people were not pumped about the Kamakura Shogunate and how it was being run. Uh, ran. Also, kind of a shadow government of sorts, as I mentioned, the Minamoto clan kind of being pushed out by Yoritomo's in-laws, who then acted as regents for child emperors. Mongols may have not made landfall in Japan's main islands, but they did capture one, and the losses were great for both sides. Mostly the Mongols, the fleets being destroyed back to back, but the Kamakura shogunate had lost its luster, and the nobles had decided to take their power back. Some local bands of warriors began to enforce their will, and their own rules and people were restless the battle that the battles that were won by the samurai against the mongols should have yielded inland reward for the samurai who fought in them as was custom but this was not the case as the enemies were of foreign lands and thus could not be presented with any land owned which increased the friction between the warriors and the government who called on them to do their bidding after after changing emperors a few times, which would lead to the next period known as Ashikaga or Muromachi. Only a few years had elapsed since the last shogunate ended, but Ashikaga Takauji helped usher in a new one. Uh, Dogaigo had claimed the throne and had a major interest in dispelling the shadow governments that were so prevalent. I mentioned the youth emperors before and that they were handled by regents who were the real power and often meddled far too much in for anybody to do anything substantial. Godago was exiled once the imperial family learned of this plans and uh the pieces were already kind of in motion at that point samurai clans were used and the ashikaga was one of the main ones following Godago's retaking of power of the emperor many were displeased with the actions and a lot of samurai were essentially like really this again Ash ashikaga takauji turned turned on him and Godago ran to the nara region while takauji placed an emperor he felt would do best for his cause in Kyoto, and that's how it was for 60 years. Two emperors and one nation. The reason why this period is some kind, sometimes called the Maramachi uh, is because Takauji's grandson, Yoshimitsu, who was a shogunate and moved their HQ to the district of Kyoto, named Muromachi. Yoshimitsu, if you're not familiar, is also the name of a samurai character in the Tekken game franchise. It's nothing to do with anything, but this is another samurai from pop culture that I remember very vividly. They classify him as a ninja, but he often has the regalia of a samurai, which, which also may make sense after a little bit. 
Yoshimitsu in real life, however, was the shogun uh, to really make a peaceful nation after two emperors had their constituents battled for, and their constituents had battled for 60 years. He even managed to repair trade relations with China and Korea, dealing with pirates that we had mentioned last week, which were creating hesitancy from the Chinese to engage in trade with Japan. The Kane or Kanga system uh, I mentioned last week was instituted around the time, around the same time. One of Yoshi Yoshimitsu's lineage would actually bring in the next major conflict, which is the Onin War. This stemmed from the falling out between the Shogun and his wife when she when she bore him a son, and he had already declared his brother to be the successor. Now, she did not like that, and many saw it as a strike against their traditions that had been followed very closely for many years. At the same time, there's turmoil underneath the high rulers while clans warred to get control of, of them. And when the official fighting between the clans ended, the nation continued fighting throughout regions. Kyoto was badly damaged in areas around it, as well as the clans fighting from 1467 to 1477. Uh, the central power was losing its hold on the nation, but at the same time, the samurai of different provinces began to lead and create autonomy for their own lands. These samurai were often farmers as well, and they had what seemed to be an actual care in what happened. This would lead to the Warring States period, and with that is when the samurai really began to flourish is what we think of. Since that is the case, I think it's time to discuss them in full, their armor, their weapons, and their strategies. I know that is a lot of history before even discussing these dudes dressed, but honestly, I find it all very pertinent to the story of these warriors. The first samurai who I mentioned before, Tiger Masakado, in the 940s would have been wearing something very similar to the style we see in depictions today. The Oyoroi is first seen in this time, but it would have been very expensive only very wealthy warriors would have full set, including a mask and helmet. The armor itself changed only slightly, but, the, but most of the earlier samurai were actually horseback archers and with this came a few things. You need protection from arrows, but also good movement for your arrow, uh, for shooting at your arrows. This is shown by the iconic large shoulder guards called the Osode, which are built from uh, lamellar construction that is layers of typically thin metal or even leather that was wrapped in fabrics and then preserved with a lacquer of sorts uh, prevented them from rusting or anything like that. Lamellar construction is also carried out in many of the other components such as the helmet and the shroud that hangs down around the bowl and the uh, chest piece which is also called the doe. Eventually the samurai became less horse bound and more on feet and swords and staff weapons so the shoulder sh the shoulder components shrank to give more mobility for the warriors in combat. One interesting thing to note is that the shoulder pieces actually shifted when the warrior would enter a shooting pose with the bow and arrow. Uh, it would give them that motion and then there's some really striking technical knot work on the back that kept them from flying around as they rode around as well. Sarmers is very, very technically impressive all around, and also very ingenious. There's there's a lot of variations to the Oyoroi, but uh, like the Domaru, which was a cheaper and lighter in weight, but this, you know, and this, you know, similar to what the f soldiers would wear when they came off of the horses and were on foot. But um, another thing I noticed that kind of harkens back to the Joman people I mentioned at the beginning, but the rope and cord work on this armor is just, it's just super impressive when you look at it very closely. Looks so magnificent and is all very, very technically impressive, as I mentioned. Joman, of course, as I mentioned, got their name from the cord style wrapping design on the pottery from that time period. It seems like that skill with fabric continued on, you know, through, through the ages. 
later on the warring states period uh the armor really takes on like a perfectionist quality and i think it really coincides with the samurai rising to a very high social ranking the fabric woven in the armor via different threads and cords known as lacing also has symbolic meaning different colors would em emphasize the power of the samurai might have especially later on in the centuries the helmets had tall horns on the place of the front and these were often sculpted to share heritage or symbolism of the wearer uh, these crests started as a recognition system easily identify the people who you were with as time moved on they, be they became more customized as the care placed in armor also a show of power and wealth what about the poor samurai you might be asking well they were kind of at the whim of their benefactors often samurai of the more poor provinces would either be unarmored or had very simple simplified armor that resembled the riding armor of the centuries prior like without the shoulder pads uh, there's also the option to scavenge the battlefield and kind of a piece at a time together or suit for yourself um you know provided you don't die before that set is complete and it's not like the samurai were jumping ship left and right samurai code of honor wasn't really a thing yet but the honorable thing is swearing fealty to your landowner you were sworn to protect and so it was rare to double cross but obviously not impossible it's also very important that you do well for them because then you might just get you know that end of the year bonus that gets you the real shiny new set of armor some of the simple things provided were large round metal helmets that would be essentially would essentially hopefully preventing arrows from taking you out on the battlefield large disc-shaped helmets are the ones that i'm referring to you've probably seen pictures of them now let's talk weapons as i mentioned earlier the samurai would have been horseback archers for the most part at the beginning the bows used would be called yumi which is a long bow which would measure upwards of 80 inches bows are no secret invention and they're you know really used in every single army for a very long time at a certain point but structure uh, of these is laminated wood and also features an off-center grip so the grip is lower down on the length of the bow which is kind of interesting people have speculated that it's for shooting on horseback or from a kneeled position but nobody really knows why ranges for these things depend on you know the periods but for the most part uh around 1300 feet and then uh lethal range around 200 feet which is pretty handy uh in the early versions of the samurai they would use um whistling arrows fire at the enemy with a whistling arrow and then charge in and then yell all the things that i mentioned before you know their heritage and everything like that and that's how they like basically saying i'm ready to be challenged the next weapon or weapons are the spear type weapons that were used often in large battlefields and the katana is something that really comes to mind but you really see those in smaller actions and on open battlefields it was long speared weapons the hoka yari which would eventually just become the yari which are spears uh they're pretty true to form as far as spears go the hoka yari was used from around the 7th century until the 14th century yari taking place after the 14th and you know and then you have the the naginata and these are a little bit different naginata features a spear shaft but the tip resembles the blade of a sword that curves slightly then naginata uh the Naginata also came around the same time as the Hokuyari, but slowly evolved into better forms. They became very effective, especially since it was able to keep enemies at a distance. Also imagine with the samurai being on horseback, these worked very well on horseback. But, but, I know, you're not interested in these, so you want to hear about the swords. Alright, I get it. Let's move on. The, sword, the swords of Japanese warriors go in sections. The Chukato is a straight sword that was used from the 9th century and prior. 
so no real samurai would use it the tachi the precursor to the katana is very similar to this but uh, uh which is very similar to the katana but it's typically longer has a more pronounced curve and is uh worn with the cutting edge facing down when slung at the waist tachi handle is much longer than the katana when looking at them but but the tachi would often be cut at the tang uh, to make a katana later on like when that was the style when that was the popular style uh, the tang is the part of the metal that is hidden inside the handles uh, when the katana took over as popular weapon choice around the 13th to 14th centuries the tachi was still worn by wealthy and powerful samurai to establish their stature the tachi could be anywhere from 28 to 32 inches usually on the longer end uh, when the Mon when the mongols invaded tsushima and other parts of the uh, nearby some swordness took a look at the swords that survived which were all tachi uh, and you know viewed how their damage affected them and used this information to make a better quality sword afterwards and these changes went in and made the katana as i mentioned the katana featured a less pronounced curve but the methodology of creating the steel was also a little bit different focusing a little more on temperatures as well as combining harder and softer steels which increased the overall strength and rigidity uh changed the weights as well katana was anywhere between 23 and 31 inches so slightly shorter than the tachi uh but it could vary since you know like i said they're they're all handmade so they're <laughs> that's not a perfect like factory stamped katana uh i don't know what it is about these things but i think they're some of the prettiest swords uh seeing videos of the super high quality ones you can just see how sharp they are the haman or the edge pattern that often looks like the zigzag uh tone at the blade's edge also gives a really really unique look to these blades this is part of the hardening done in, during the crafting of these swords making the edge of these uh marking the edge of the hardened sections the haman is actually uh used to distinguish blades from famous swordsmiths that are being kept track of like papers and like there's documents that feature the drawings uh <laughs> and like log replication patterns of these to keep track of them when swords are sold in japan like to this day the process in which the blades are made even gave it its most defining feature which is the curve quenching the blades in a liquid after heating it drastically and then cooling it causes the metal to react by contorting you know a specific way uh and curves the blade as well as that also leaves the haman or that's when the haman appears both katana and the tachi feature a pairing weapon the wakazashi i mentioned before like super early the wakazashi being shorter uh accompanying blade saying about a foot and a half if not a little bit longer but it's got you know, a little more aggressive of a nature to it if you're familiar with the samurai you know the whole death before dishonor type mentality they have well in this uh effort the wakazashi was a blade that could be used in oneself in the ritual of seppuku or self-disembowelment also referred to harakari or belly cutting seppuku was used by samurai as a preference to being taken prisoner or showing major opposition to something you could also be ordered to do it which would be a punishment of sorts this would be a key part in bushido or warrior's code uh when eventually introduced later on the wakazashi uh, itself would be worn with a larger blade to show that a person was indeed a samurai usefulness of the blade itself seems to uh, stem from the practice of leaving katanas outside castles when visiting and still being able to maintain the hold on the wakazashi and bring it inside thus keeping it you know with them but then also fighting in close quarters such as inside buildings 
So the full armor, as well as the weapons, went through many refinements, and a lot of that development came through the Warring States period. The period is known as the Sengoku or Sengoku period. I mentioned it a little bit last week, as well as some today, but essentially the Warring States was a massive collection of landowners feuding with one another and using their samurai to fight against one, uh, each other. I watched one video that describes the advances in armor that came towards the end of the sam that came towards the end of the Warring States, and were essentially as good as their armor could get with what they were fighting against, which is people armored exactly the same way that they were. It's interesting to think that at exactly the same time uh, across the world, the Renaissance is happening. I also think it's also definitely interesting that the armor only ever evolved while fighting people within Japan or nearby. There's no crusade level trekking going on and mingling with people in different continents. Those people would come to them eventually, as mentioned last week in the mid 16th century. When the Portuguese arrived, only the only new technology that was really interested in the people of Japan was the matchlock rifles that they brought. With how savvy the people were making weapons and armor, it wasn't long before they made their own versions of these, which would be called the Tanagashima, named after the island where the Portuguese possibly introduced them. With these being more expensive and also deadly, they were, were used by samurai of wealth and influence the most. They made improvements on the weapons by creating covers for them so they could fire in the rain and also adding new rifling to the barrels that would have better accuracy and punch. One thing that they did that really stuck out to me was they invented like a sort of fast reloading system, which uh, they would call cartridges. But in reality, it's a system of prepared shot, powder, and wanting necessary to reload the gun. This was most effective since the relo reloading of matchlock and flintlocks was uh, after the flintlocks that came after was such an arduous process. They end up making up several varied styles with different caliber and purpose. Some suited for horseback, others were essentially hand cannons. Now the Sengoku now the Sengoku period has no official start and end date since it's so widespread, but it's typically considered over by the time the Tokugawa Shogunate finishes off the last rebellion in 1615 and having begun uh, following the events of the Onan War in 1467 to 1477 is also at this time that we have the advents of warriors like the shinobi who are known these days as ninjas that's right you didn't think i would leave out the other famous warrior types of medieval japan did you well that's some bad news uh <laughs> there actually wasn't a secret order of uh assassins that dressed in all black and terrorized people if you remember earlier when describing the kanji system in Japan, how there would be tells on how to read it and what it could mean might vary. Well, the kanji for shinobi and ninja are one and the same in context for knowing it means shinobi goes back to documents from around this time. It's also through these documents that we were able to decipher that the ninja were not a special secret order, but in fact were just samurai with different orders. They specialized in espionage and night attacks, but were but they were samurai while they were doing so. Much like other militaries have soldiers with specified tactics and missions, that was the case here where I found it to be super interesting and almost world-breaking in a way. Looking at how much ninja content there is, so many things including a special form of martial arts called ninjutsu, all dedicated around a premise that there is no evidence for. I know you might be thinking to yourself, exactly, no evidence. Sounds like they did their job. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that thought, but it's actually quite the opposite. There are documents from the Edo period, from the samurai who fought in the Sengoku period and who described performing acts that would be what we typically think a ninja or shinobi would do. Even their straight-edge katanas or ninjatos uh, is a relatively new invention coming into popular culture in the 20th century. 
I thought that part was especially fascinating and hope you do too. With a hundred years and change of the warring states happening, it was actually the effort of three men, Oda Nobunaga, who after taking over his clan uh, from his father that had left him the clan after he died, fought others to unify the clan and eventually the whole Ora Ori province and then most of central Japan. It's a pretty big deal because this is the mid 16th century and everybody's fighting at this point. Eventually the uprising continued and Nobunaga was uh, attacked by one of his generals while he was uh, he and his clan defended the surprise attack. They defended it pretty well at first but they eventually failed and Nobunaga had to commit seppuku rather than fall to the hands of his betrayers. After this Toyotomi Hideyoshi took control and continued to attempt to bring the country together but it wouldn't be until after his death and successor Tokugawa Ieyasu Tokugawa Ieyasu that things would really come back together. Things did not smooth over and eventually the final pieces of the rebellion after uh, ended after the Battle of the Sekigahara in 1600 and the Siege of Osaka in 1615. The Tokugawa Shogunate was uh, implemented, that was implemented, lasted all the way until 1868 when the Meiji Restoration took place. Over 200 years of peace for the archipelago was once plunged completely into war. The Tokugawa Shogunate and the Samurai in the Edo period were officially the top dogs and thus had to behave respectfully and also intensely. Going back slightly, we have the beginning of the Bushido or Warrior's Code. This is the quintessential Samurai honor system, but it has its roots much further back than the 16th century debut. It can be seen in slightly different ways and not entirely, partially all the way back to the Kamakura period. So it also has some roots in the exposure of Buddhism, Confucianism to Japan. The Bushido also infuses the importance of skills with combat, with a weapon or without, as well as the undying loyalty to the landowner he, who he was sworn to. Other tenants include living with frugal intentions, honor, kindness. With the Edo period being so peaceful, there was also an influx of uh, samurai becoming different positions of power than they were before. With the declining needs of warriors, the samurai took different jobs that would be effective in making change. Uh, the katana now were symbols that were extent of their power and wealth rather than a functioning weapon, although they still trained quite often. With life changing in the 18th century for most of Japan, as the economy began to flourish, large urban areas expanded. Uh, and necessity of agricultural protection was a smaller focus. Samurai had been given a certain amount of money as a fixed rate, but as the economy bloomed, that money seemed less and less, and they started becoming impoverished by the 19th century. They also left to decide. Uh, they were also left to decide to be farmers or protectors, but they were not allowed to do both anymore, which cut their income significantly in many cases as well. 19th century also brought stubborn outsiders in the way of the United States steamboats knocking on the doors of the Japanese harbors. Part of the peace that was established at the beginning of the Tokugawa Shogunate was shutting itself off from foreign trade for the most part, but eventually they were able to reach an agreement with the United States basically threatening to explode Japan and in an effort to open up the trade. And they did. Um, so, yeah, they, it trade expanded pretty drastically with this things changed quite quite in immediately <laughs> two centuries of isolation with a major influx of trade really switched things around and this meant major modernization for pretty much everything but mostly the military several things contributed to change-ups in the government but the biggest factor was of japan being dominated by foreign powers as they now knew existed. Uh, the fear to thrust themselves into the modern world to make sure they could maintain their sovereignty. There were some last-ditch efforts to keep things orderly. In 1863, the shogunate ordered some samurai to travel to Paris to request the closing of a port in Yokohama, which would 
result in one of the coolest pictures I've ever seen. The images of this expedition where you can see samurai in front of the Sphinx in Egypt, which just holds a very odd juxtaposition of the two you know, worlds combining. The Tokugawa shogunate ended with Shogun Yoshinobi relinquishing his powers to the emperor after a series of protests and battles in the form of the Boshin War. Japanese military had already begun rebuilding and a standing army was brought back to quell the rebellions that followed. By 1872, conscription re was reinstated, which meant that the samurai were no longer needed and they were officially dissolved four years later. There's still a respect and the learnings of the samurai did not disappear but the official titles were gone and benefits with them. Even up to World War II the term uh, Shizoku or warrior families was used to show respect to the families of descendants of former samurai. I know it's kind of anticlimactic but that really is the end of the samurai slowly dying off from peaceful times and the official officially done away with at the end of the 19th century to make way for official armies. Like I said though the teachings of the co code of honor are still very much alive and taught in both class and uh, class form and through media. Obviously the media takes a lot of liberties with the expanding of myths and falsehoods but I believe it's a good jumping off point if you want to know more about these topics samurai may have been told that they were no longer part of society in 1876 but look at how much they are still in popular culture their influence is super strong like i said ghosts of tsushima is being hailed as one of the most beautiful games as of late and is based around samurai battle against the mongols it is clear that the legacy of the samurai will live on hopefully for a long time because it is so interesting but with that let's move on to the interesting facts we learned today first thing that comes to mind is probably the biggest revelation of this episode and maybe the podcast so far ninjas are mostly just mythologized samurai there were samurai called shinobi that practiced espionage and dark time tactics but nowhere near the level that is portrayed in media which is fascinating to me the fact that the samurai weren't like you know specific type of military but also but like a type of person that got brought into a military type force is also kind of wild another thing i really loved learning about was their armor stuff is super impressive do we know if it could take the full brunt of a scottish claymore no but it is fascinating how well it was crafted in response to the combat it did see you know they knew what weapons they were going to be facing for the most part and that's the weapons or that's the weapons that they used to protect against and they did a good job um also loved how much chaos is actually in historical Japan. The amount of clan-on-clan -clan violence is staggering. I think mainly because of how peaceful everything seems when looking at Japan in a scaled-back lens. I believe this is true about historical look at pretty much every place, but it's funny to think of Japan as the birthplace of, you know, Mario, anime, and Hello Kitty <laughs> being this chaotic, uh, this chaos, bloody katanas, and warring states all over. Also, don't really have anything to rant about this week. Which I know, kind of wild, but other than I hope nobody complains about me butchering the pronunciations of these words, they are hard to do, and sometimes, you know, I'm just doing the best I can with the videos I watch to help me pronounce them. But that's it for the samurai. Definitely a lot of history, much more digestible, hopefully, in this one. Not 3,500 years worth of one topic crammed into two episodes. <laughs> kind of. Anyway, hopefully. Uh, that's it. Uh, thank you for your continued support. Thank you for reviews, ratings. Remember to share us with your friends, interact with Facebook, do all the things. Next week, we'll have some of the wild experiments done to further human advancement. Some have been helpful, some have been horrible, and we will be looking at the extremes of them next week. And that's it for today. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.